This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Rheumatoid Solutions Podcast with Clint Patterson, helping you to live an easier, healthier and happier life. Thanks for joining me. You're going to love today's episode. Our guest is rheumatologist, Dr. George Munoz. He was one of the three rheumatology panel guests that we had on a live webinar a few months ago. And one of my clients from Inside Rheumatoid Support watched that and went and became his patient. So she went and saw him for a consultation over Zoom after she saw Dr. Munoz on that COVID panel. Well, she came back to me and said he was fantastic and kept telling me about how wonderful it was to do that conversation with him over Skype. So I reached out to Dr. Muniz and said, hey, hearing such wonderful things about your work and also some of the things that you said in the COVID panel really caught my attention and I'd love to have you on the show. So he agreed and today he pulls back the curtain on what it's like to be a rheumatologist. It's a fascinating discussion. Dr. Muniz is one of the most interesting, most well-spoken, most intelligent, and yet one of the most humble people that I've met in a very long time. I really, really like this man. Now, he goes into detail uh, and dispels some myths. He answers questions about whether or not everyone with autoimmune arthritis must be on medication. Um, He talks about drug reps and is it true they come to the office and try and push their products and influence the treatment of patients. He talks about biologic drugs and how the evolution of the perception of those has changed over the years. Talks about insurance companies and the way in which they can also potentially influence the, uh, the potential treatment regime for a patient. And I ask him some personal questions too, and we get quite personal. He talks about a real life death experience, which is fascinating. And he goes into detail about how that helped him to evolve as a human being and as a physician and to influence the way in which he created his clinic. And now he has an integrated clinic where he has a 360 degree approach to helping people heal and not just offering the medicines or the um, conventional Western approach that rheumatology uh, tends to embrace. So I think you're going to love this episode. And if you're a member of Rheumatoid Support or Rheumatoid Solutions, you know that we do live monthly Q&A with special health experts. Well, the July guests uh, this year is going to be Dr. Munoz. He's going to be available and uh, answer questions on the fly on our July webinar. So if you're a member of Rheumatoid Support or Rheumatoid Solutions, make sure you check the webinar schedule and attend that webinar. You'll see why, because you're going to love hearing from him today. Uh, And he also does Skype consultations as well. At the moment, he's taking Skype calls, consultations uh, from everyone in the world. So don't miss this opportunity. And uh, the details of how to contact Dr. Muniz are on the show notes of this episode over at rheumatoidsolutions.com. Let's get into it. Well, I have a very special guest today, and he's going to be joining us today, his first time on the Rheumatoid Solutions podcast. If you've been watching some of the information being shared over the past few months, particularly around COVID-19, you would have seen him as part of the special uh, rheumatology panel that we had dealing with all of the uh, intricacies of COVID and having an autoimmune disease. Uh, his name is Dr. George Munoz, and he's joining me. He's also from Florida, and he has two areas of expertise, rheumatology and integrative medicine, and his clinic, uh, integrative medicine portion of the clinics known as the Oasis Institute. Dr. Munoz is a world-class scholar-trained arthritis specialist, an internist, medical anthropologist, integrative medicine specialist, national lecturer, author, and martial artist who blends his training, experiences, and acquired knowledge into cutting-edge wellness, age management, and disease prevention techniques. 
His clients include elite professional athletes, celebrities, professionals, corporations, in addition to any individual seeking alternative and futuristic approaches to age management at the physical and or energetic level, as well as his uh, highly esteemed rheumatology profession. So thank you, Dr. George Muniz, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Clint. It's always a pleasure and honor to be working with you and speaking with you and sharing with, with all the audience. Thank you. That, that means a lot to me coming from you. Um, the first moment that you blew my socks off was during our rheumatology panel discussion and uh, why we fielded a question from the live chat about glutathione. And of the three guests, you jumped on it quickly and you gave a thorough answer about glutathione. And this caught my attention so much because so many rheumatologists may not have been able to provide the level of depth to an answer about glutathione that you did. And that made me look into you a little further and do some more research and really wanted to reach out to you, not just for this one episode, but we've, uh, we've got a few scheduled because I really wanted to tap into your uh, vast knowledge. Well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, for me, it's humbling to be able to share what others have been able to share with me. And, and I hope that by mutually discussing these topics, these experiences, it's going to help someone. Yes. And hopefully we'll help a lot of people. I think a lot of people are going to be really interested in this topic today and hearing what you have to say. You see, uh, you're on the other side of the desk uh, from a lot of my audience. And uh, when we go to see a rheumatologist, particularly for the very first time, it can be a very daunting experience. Uh, I underestimated my condition when I first went to the rheumatologist. I was told that it was very serious and I need to be ex expedited to see my rheumatologist. I had, you know, seropositive with multiple joints affected. You know, it was a really, really severe early onset. And it was a, it, it, you know, it, the whole experience can be challenging and, and overwhelming. And so today, you and I had a discussion and, and I come up with the idea and you, you said that'd be okay. We're going to pull back the curtain behind rheumatology and you're going to share with us what it's like being a rheumatologist and the experience you've had in, in this profession and, uh, and just give us that insight from the other side of the desk. And I think it's going to be fascinating. So why don't we kick it off with um, what got you into this? Why rheumatology? Was it something you always wanted to do? So, no. <laughs> it wasn't something, you know, I always wanted to do. I was one of these uh, uh, med students that was interested in a lot of things, but had no clue really as to what I would uh, get into. I would say that uh, there were a few reasons I got into rheumatology, and they had to do with two things. One was phenomenal mentors that really jazzed me um, about how to think about rheumatology, rheumatology issues. And I admired them for their humanistic qualities mm. and how they interacted with patients. That blew my mind because I thought it looked different, felt different. Mm. That was something I aspired to. Mm. And I didn't understand it like that in the beginning. It was just a strong affiliation. And this happened a couple of times. And then the autoimmune conditions themselves, the immunology was very, very interesting. But I also liked and still like and have a passion for in my quest to help someone. Mm -hmm. the analysis of looking at what they're experiencing, what they're feeling, how it's affecting them from different aspects, and then narrowing it down, and then putting it in language, verbally, emotionally, written, uh, auditory, whatever the person needs because we all learn differently and hear differently 
to be able to communicate a few things. First of all, hope. Yeah. And I learned that from my mentors. And number two, utilizing skill sets that I've been able to hone over the past 35 years in practice outside of medicine, mostly. And that's the short version. Yeah, yeah. I've got a prepared set of questions here for you, but I want to just jump off those questions for a second. (laughs) (laughs) And I want to, and before I get onto my next prepared question, one comes to mind that, that, that I know when we hear the word hope, uh, I know that everyone uh, may not experience a, a shiver through the body and get goosebumps. It's a different feeling. It's a feeling in the heart or the chest. And I've described hope, uh, when I've given you know, public talks about this or, or, or keynote presentations about my journey, hope as being a path that you can now see between point A and point B, and that a lack of hope is having no apparent way to get from point A to B, and that hope can be returned to the human very quickly, just like love. If you haven't had love in a long time or felt love, but someone can sometimes look at you in the eye in a certain way, or it might be a pet even, or just uh, just one, one spirit to another, and you can feel the love. In the same way, hope can come back quickly. Now, now I'm putting you on the spot here, but sometimes clients will say that they've felt lost hope after seeing their rheumatologist because you know, it can feel like, oh, now like a lifetime of drugs and all these problems. But, you know, are there any ways that you've found can instill the hope in someone? And do you think it is giving them a path forward that seems seems appropriate and, and, and acceptable? So the answer is yes. And that's the language of a healer versus being someone who's not in touch and sensing fear in a human being, mm-hmm. um, not under, not having the sensitivity that this can feel frightening, yeah. uh, and, and remembering that someone just hearing the diagnosis goes to a part in their emotions that isn't always logical, where they begin to lose hope because of things they've heard, perhaps things they've seen or experienced, and don't come in logically and say, well, that's not going to be me because I'm in front of, you know, this highly trained individual who's going to give me answers and a path forward. That's not how human emotions work. And learning to be a clinician, a healer, not a uh, a physician or a person who's trying to help people putting themselves way way up here and and the person receiving the healing or the advice or the patient or the client, whichever way you want to put it, is way down here. No. Uh, I, I've shown this to you before. You know, it's got to be together. And it's got to sink in. And that's a process. And I mean, basically it takes my allowing myself to become vulnerable and to allow my human side to be seen and to meet the person and their fear at a place that they feel comfortable. And then basically metaphorically, I walk with them Mm. and, um, if I sense or hear that they have fear, loss of hope is usually right there. If, they're, if they've experienced um, bad outcomes previously, loss of hope may be where they're at. So my job is to not create fictional hope, but really to help build a solid foundation of a plan which they feel the person feels is realistic and that in itself is part of the hope process as well as me verbalizing things like we are not 
I don't explain who we are, but I say things like, we are not going to allow you to become crippled. That's not going to happen. And I sometimes I just take the worst case scenario to say, this is not going to happen. Now, can I 100% guarantee that? No, because anything can happen. But do I believe, given my experience, what the repertoire of treatments, both holistic and conventional, that we have available, and what I've seen over and over again is the experience that I relay as what can give somebody hope. And those outcomes overall are vastly more positive than negative. And, and th- this is the framework of the language that I use as well. Yeah, I love it. That, that's great. And uh, uh, thanks for um, you know, sharing your, your unique approach to that. And I, I think that that's what does separate you from a lot of physicians um, because it does sound um, very different to the way that many meetings with rheumatologists are reported because some people have uh, experiences that are far less empathetic, far less compassionate, far less um, based on experience and and multiple bags, uh, sorry, tricks in the bag is what you have. So um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Now a much simpler question. Uh, the, uh, the, the path through university and the education path, uh, just really quickly, I mean, is it, is it, uh, is there like a, a handful of years as a, um, a medicine and then on to specialist training? Is that the basic path? Yeah. So pretty much uh, here in the States, you know, college and then uh, medical school of four years, uh, at which time when you graduate, you know nothing and you are severely frightened when you are let out to be in your basically your apprenticeship. Okay of how to interact with other humans in the art of healing. And you're thrust into doing things as an intern and being primarily responsible for patients who are very sick, but always you have somebody uh, backing you up and overseeing you and supervising you. And you go through a ritual of over three years of internal medicine where you become more proficient in the in the general field of internal medicine through all the specialties. Um, at, at the end of those three years, if you decide to specialize, you can do what's called a fellowship, and it'll be either two or three years in a subspecialty of internal medicine, of which rheumatology is one of them, but cardiology, uh, gastroenterology, uh, pulmonary diseases, psychiatry, et cetera, are all other subspecialties. And then during that time, you're concentrated and focused on learning um, those conditions, treating those patients now at a, at a higher level. And you're learning also to be a consultant to other doctors. You're learning not only the specialty, but you're learning how to be a, a doctor who helps other physicians, and you're learning to be a primary specialist to the patients, and you're learning how to give advice in both the hospital and in clinic, and you're learning, for lack of a better word, the tricks of the trade in conventional training. Now, after you finish that, and after you take the test for board certification in internal medicine and and your specialty, then supposedly you're set to go. But I would say that my experience was that uh, over the next uh, one to five years was a rapid ascent of learning things that I never learned in my training uh, that were very basic uh, in terms of practicality and day-to-day operations. Uh, I knew a lot about complex diseases, mm-hmm. but I didn't know a lot about how to operate the nuts and bolts, for example, of running my own practice and and how to take care of people who didn't have esoteric diseases. And it came down to these things that we talked about, speaking to people on a heart level, understanding where they are, 
not dictating to them, not talking at them, but talking, communicating with them, listening more and stopping to interrupt. Yeah. Wow. So there's so much into it, isn't there? I mean, you've you've just described uh, almost a minimum of around 10 years before you can actually start a clinic? Well, I started it technically uh, at year six. And what I'm saying is, is that it took me another two to two to five years to really get comfortable mm. in the day-to-day. I, I could handle complex cases, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about, you know, how to do the day-to-day, how to do the human-to-human, how to work with others and play mm. well with others, mm. and and really, and then learn how to meet my patient where they are and not try to impose past thoughts that were picked up during medical education about the role of the physician in the in the relation the therapeutic relationship i personally there was always respect for the patient but how can you have heartfelt respect if you're always dictating down at someone Mm. So I was never a big proponent of that. I was more into creating a working relationship with a par- with a partnership where there was communication back and forth and we could discuss issues of concern, issues of contention, issues where they could become stumbling points in someone's accepting treatment to create success for them and best outcome, best journey for them. Now, that took me a long time because I had to work on myself for the next 10, 15 years a lot. And I'm not saying I've arrived and I'm perfect. I'm not saying that. But I have learned a lot. I'm wiser than I was. And, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't change how it happened because it all happened for a reason. But I would understand that even having been to really the best institutions, top-tier institutions, doesn't guarantee that I'm going to be a good healer. I have paperwork, I have, you know, all these things, but the work of being a good healer is learning the art of healing in medicine it's not black and white. There's lots of gray, there's nuance, and I, I'm, I'm a student of learning that. Hmm. And even the word healer, uh, you know, doesn't tend to come up in many other discussions with rheumatologists. And so uh, this leads me into my next question, which is regarding your particular clinic. You've got an integrated clinic here, and you use integrative medicine, and you've been doing this for so long um, that your integrated clinic would have been called, it, it, w- it was called an integrated clinic before it became popular to have, in inverted commas, an integrated clinic. You've been doing it for a long time. I want to know how that came about, and I think that this might lead us into some of your personal journey and, and so on. So can you take us through how this, how this developed? Sure. So I'm going to share a little something that you don't know about this path, because as I reflect even uh, on how you, you're asking me to uh, walk through this development, uh, the very first memories of natural approaches and natural healing remedies, if you will, was from my mother and my grandmother. So I grew up with that in my brain and seeing it. I never really questioned it. I just assumed that for them it was true. There was something to it. But I never heard about it in medical school. I never saw it or heard it again until I started to go after that knowledge base. As a direct result, 
of patients asking me information about natural products and supplements and approaches and my complete ineptitude in the topic, I decided that it was part of my duty to learn about what they're asking me. So I started to self-educate myself, but not, I didn't have a great format. I didn't know what, how to do that. I just started reading and trying to learn what I thought the topics were that I was being asked about. They're, they're about supplements many times. Can they be taken with their medications, their disease-modifying drugs, etc.? And then after a life-changing event, which is what I shared with you, which I'll get into now, which was a major life-and-death event where I had a significant automobile accident and I rolled uh, my vehicle multiple times on a deserted highway coming across Florida. It's called Alligator Alley from the West Coast to the East Coast of Florida. And the reason was, well, the reason was because I, I, I needed to have my attention struck uh, by the universe, okay? But the, the concrete reason of what caused the, the accident was that there was a, an animal crossing the road right in front of me, um, Jaguar, okay, Florida Jaguar. We locked eyes, and I just made a, a, an instant decision that I was not going to kill the animal, so I veered. Now, at that point, it was micro fractions of a second, but it seemed like a long time. And then I lost control of the vehicle gradually as I started to swerve. I was going too fast, and I was in a very big, allegedly safe, it was safe, vehicle. And I started to roll now um, and flip over multiple times. At that time, at that point, time changed. And this is the first time in my life that I experienced a what I'm going to call a time warp. Um, the normal frame of time was not no longer there, and I went into super slow mo, just like when they replay sports events super slow and super slow. Did the player was his foot on the line? It was like that, and I felt like I was in a dream state, but I would, but it was real. And I also had f fantasy thinking of that if I put my arm over my head to protect my head and neck, that when I rolled the next time, I would not break my neck because I was afraid to be paralyzed at night in a deserted road in the swamp, the Everglades. So I did that. I put my arm over and I, we rolled at least two more times. Notice I keep saying we. And all the glass blew out of the car and the entire roof caved in on the vehicle because it was a heavy vehicle. It's a big, pompous vehicle. And, <laughs> and uh, I landed in the Everglades and basically I was not hurt at all. You know, the, the system strapped me in, all the glass was gone, the engine was smoking, and I was in the Everglades and I had flown over a canal. That's how fast we were going. And I'd gone through a fence. And when I stepped out of the vehicle, I immediately sank into the Everglades. And it, that was like a dream state. And when I stepped back out, uh, I had like leeches on me. And I had to find my cell phone and used it to call the person that I had just left company with on that side of Florida. And they called um, for help. And I was, I was found fairly quickly. So um, once I, I, I stepped out, though, time changed again. It went from that sloop or slow-mo. Uh, it accelerated, and now it was a normal time. 
And now I was scared. Uh, I was no longer in that dream state. I, I was like, holy moly, and the adrenaline, okay? So it took me about a year and a half to really have the courage and the willingness to find out what that all meant. Why, why did I survive that? Why wasn't I hurt? What was the message there? And when I was ready to ask the question, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And that's what happened. Uh, a friend of mine said, hey, George, aren't you curious as to why you survived that thing? <laughs> I have, I have uh, a shaman that's going to be here like the day after tomorrow. I think you should meet with her. And I said, a what? <laughs> what is that? What is a shaman? You know, and I was rather arrogant about it. Um, but nonetheless, I, I did meet with her. And I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what a shaman was. And what occurred then was a, another life-changing experience by my interaction with this very uh, spiritual, talented, psychic, brilliant woman who was of the Hopi uh, uh, nation, um, full shaman. And what happened with her was that I had my second time warp experience in the, in the uh, three hours that I spent with her felt like one hour. And what she did was an, an analysis of the event that I just outlined to you, which sounded like a dream state, but it was live. And she conducted her energetic and shamanic testing, just like as a rheumatologist, I would conduct my testing, my imaging, my x-rays, my database, my laboratory. Well, she did her set of testing, and it included numerology. It included uh, writing to read the right side of my brain uh, for me to write the story uh, using my non-dominant hand to activate my, my non-dominant hemisphere that, that speaks in images and not in blocking words of logic. Um, she checked my energetic fields. She did a basically a hypnosis session, because she's also a trained hypnotist, and all this took that amount of time, and I was able to, at the end of the session, understand that uh, something that was way out of my usual training that had more to do with spirituality, the universe, and messaging that I needed to uh, become aware of. And I had a choice. I could remain dull to the event, pretend it never happened, and then pretend that the session with the shaman where, again, time warp changed and other things occurred that I could not explain by conventional science, and that if I wanted to gain more knowledge about this and a deeper understanding about myself, what makes me tick, what's my purpose here? Um, I decided to go ahead and, and, and do work with her. And I did that for the next couple of years and spent uh, weeks with her at a time uh, over the next couple of years. And then she led me towards the end. She said, you know, we've done all we can do. I think you need to go to your homeland and work with shamans from there. So uh, that led to, again, uh, synchronicities and meeting future mentors, Dr. Alberto Vialdo being one of them, uh, Andrew Weil, who I did the integrative medicine training with. And this basically was an entry point to the next decade of self-discovery, of energetic healing uh, training, of doing the work. And that's how it, that's what, that's what led to all of that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you certainly haven't had the, um, the typical, you know, backstory for the, for your average rheumatologist. And, uh, I think that it just adds so much more 
depth and provides you with an ability to, to treat a patient in more of a 360 degree manner as opposed to just the you know one dimensional approach of of Western medicine, which can work so often, but um, may be limited from you know some perspectives. I, I'm just shaking my head. Yes, because that is what what happens. It's like I can't stop it sometimes. Yeah, and so give us uh, maybe an example, uh, or 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 just um, in general terms, if you're seeing somebody and they have classic symptoms of uh, rheumatoid arthritis, and they've got elevated, you know, CRP, and their their finger joints hurt or or whatnot, how might you draw upon your different skill set to approach that person's best path forward? So. I use my classic training and then even without wanting to or with consciously knowing I'm doing it, um, hearing, listening, and seeing the person in front of me and sensing their, their energy, their emotions, hearing their voice, their intonation. I see what the entry point was for why they come to see me. me. So that means what are the complaints they actually have physically that they think is the real, is the reason they're there to see me. I look at those reasons, but I also look at those symptoms or complaints as an entry point as to what's happening in their life. And I'm looking at them, you call it uh, 360, I call it three-dimensional. We're saying the same thing. Um, I don't look at it as just complaints of the joint. Mm-hmm. I look, I'm, I'm evaluating how it's affecting them emotionally. Um, I'm evaluating how much pain they are. That's pretty standard. I'm gauging their frustration and fear. That's not standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sensing from them or their family, uh, what's what's the story behind the story? Yeah, and and I'm also looking to see what's the family history, and are there energetic ties that are affecting this patient from their ancestry? That's not just called family history. That's called family ties or cords. We don't use those terms in standard medicine, but we use them in shamanic healing so i I, i'm listening hearing sensing seeing and i'm moving back and forth from conventional paradigms to unconventional paradigms i do it fairly seamlessly i'm not even thinking about it that's just what i do now in the beginning i had to say okay now i'm going to check this person's energetic field Uh, i'm you know i'm doing that from the second i see them and I, I'm, I, I try to sense what's the dominant emotion that they're emitting. Mm. And I try to, and usually that emotion is out of balance. So I try to give them something on the emotional side, in addition to the conventional approaches and even the lifestyle and nutrition, diet, supplements, you know, and invariably we talk about medications or we start meds but I don't always start medications right off the get-go. And I gauge what does the person want. Some people say, I don't want meds right now, so I respect that. But I also tell them where they're at and, and try to be a mirror for them, not tell them what to do, but be a mirror and show them this is where you are. And if you don't take medicines, for a long time, this is what can happen. You you know, I try to be honest and say, hey, you have some time. It's not super urgent. We can go this way. Or why don't we do both, natural and medicine? And, uh, you know, I try to meet them at a place that they're comfortable with, because if they're uncomfortable, they're not going to do it. And if they're not going to do it, Mm. they're not going to have any benefit. So I don't worry about being sued for not giving them all drugs I, because I don't have that relationship with them, mm. okay? 
as long as I'm truthful with what they need, I'm good with the paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Can you give us uh, a couple of recommendations, not to necessarily one patient in particular, but some recommendations that you feel were probably quite unique to you as a physician and as a healer um, that maybe uh, very few other rheumatologists may have may have recommended in the past? So I think I think now it's becoming more and more common and you know I'm, I'm less unique in that way, thank goodness. But I think for a long time I, I did used to, even before I did the fellowship in integrative medicine, which was another two-year fellowship at the University of Arizona Center for Integrative Medicine with Andrew Weil, uh, even prior to that, um, you know, understanding what someone's nutrition and diet looked like was very uh, uh, important. Understanding that high sugar, high fructose corn syrup and high sugar in general is pro-inflammatory. Red meat and uh, omega-6s and trans fats being pro-inflammatory. And then, so I'm going to say that 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 was really out there and, you know, rather uh, unique, but it's, and I'm glad it's not so unique now. But what is unique, I think, is the consistency of checking all the disciplines that are part of integrative medicine and making them part and parcel of the total body, total person, not total body, total person uh, approach of which medication is just one sector. And so this includes their emotions, exercise, sleep, nutrition, supplements, I love the area of supplements. I, I, I've studied it. I'm fascinated by it. And I've taken it. I've had the opportunity to uh, become uh, uh, the chief formulator for my rheumatology group for our supplement line, of which the flagship inflammation product uh, is unique because it, it has three methods of treating inflammation naturally. So I would say that's unique. Mm. And so I borrowed that piece from conventional medicine. I learned in conventional medicine that when we have DMARDs, biologic specifically, that if, for example, a TNF fails, why would we keep giving them TNFs over and over again? Maybe we need to change the mechanism of action and give them something else. Um, and, um, the way the system is set up, what's called step edits many times has required us to use the same agents over and over again, even though it doesn't make logical sense. So when I'm using nutraceuticals, I like using different mechanisms of action simultaneously, Mm -hmm. less of it to reduce even side effects of nutraceuticals but working on inflammation at different points in the inflammatory cascade. So I like that. That I think that's unique, and that's an awesome application of conventional medicine to integrative approaches, as opposed to just using you know, one type of supplement line, you know, say just omega-3, okay? Uh, but combining them with with botanicals that work differently. Yeah, yeah, fantastic and fascinating. Um, I know that you know you have a, a lot to offer us and our audience on that topic, um, and we'll have to cover that information at another time because I uh, uh, want to still learn more behind the curtain stuff here. But we will um, we'll definitely kind of address all that at a different time. I know that we could do a whole episode on supplements and their impact on inflammation and uh, what can work for folks. Uh, let me just move forward with some, uh, some 
commonly held myths or perhaps their truths here. You've addressed medication, so I'll skip my question about must everyone be on medication because I think you've said, well, that's conditional patient or person to person and um, people when they can contact you and, and discuss their situation with you uh, can gauge um, the um, feedback from you and, and work with you on that. Let's talk about this next question I have here. Um, is it true that drugs, dr- uh, drug representatives come to your office and want to push a certain type of drug. My next door neighbor is a drug rep, a pharmaceutical rep, okay? And I think she, she works with cardiovascular patients and, uh, uh, or cardiovascular medical products. So, I mean, is it true that, someone, that, that you are influenced um, externally for certain um, medical uh, suggestions to patients? So it's true that medical representatives, drug reps, visit the physician office or physicians peddling their wares. They are in sales. This is what they do. That's what the drug uh, pharmaceutical company pays them to do. And it is to boost sales. I mean, they don't make qualms about it, but through education of the physician, education of the patient, proper indications, but yes, they're there to influence your prescriptive patterns. I mean, it's true. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as a physician or practitioner uses their best judgment in picking the right patients who have the right diagnosis, who may benefit from that therapy Mm. and not exclude other treatments that could be as good or safe for the patient and that work. Mm. So, you know, there's a lot of room right now in rheumatology. There are a lot of medicines. When I started in rheumatology, we only had like three things. I mean, we had steroids, which is a nightmare for a patient to be on too long, too much. Mm-hmm. We had uh, Plaquenil hydroxychloroquine, which we've had for 37 years. It's it's a tried and true. By the way, it's not dangerous in how we prescribe it as rheumatologists, but we typically don't prescribe it with antibiotics like AZT typically, okay? And we're usually using standard lower doses. And we measure the level in the blood now to help reduce toxicity. We've had methotrexate for a long time and and, uh, there are a few other disease-modifying drugs, which we've had for a long time as well. But we had no biologics, zero biologics for my first 10 years in medicine. Yeah. And we had chemotherapy cytoxan, which was a bit frightening to use, for example, in rheumatoid arthritis. So when the biologics started, you know, in the mid-90s, they opened up a new era in medicine, and now we have so many drugs, both biologic and small molecule, that it's hard to, honestly, it's hard to keep track of it right. and to stay abreast of it. Uh, but we have many pharmaceutical options, but we also have more whole person integrative capability now than we used to. And I think the best is yet to come as we put all of this together. Just sticking on the biologics for a second, it's when I was first diagnosed like 14 years ago, it certainly wasn't something that was in any of the early discussions with my rheumatologist over the first few years. And I think that's because I, my, personal, my personal attitude was very drug adverse and I don't think he wanted to talk about treatments that were over and above the ones that I was already, you know, reluctant to take, which was the methotrexate, for example. But just observing, um, you know, anecdotally people's stories over the years since I've, you know, communicated with just so many people with RA, is it true 
that the biologic approach, being on a biologic drug in today's day and age, is not considered as uh, last resort as what it used to be. And instead, it's quite often simply considered the appropriate choice for some patients. I would say that that's true. I would say that the specialty has matured, that that experience over time has led us to understand more about all autoimmune conditions better than we did, specifically rheumatoid arthritis. We understand what some of the knowledge gaps are better now than we did before. We understand the relationship of the microbiome and the gut Mm. to chronic inflammation. We understand the role that stress, anxiety, and depression plays on a person's response, pain, sleep, their their ability to, to stay on a regimen. And we understand that for some individuals, getting them under rapid control faster is the way to go. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that if that's individual who's, who's in, those people are typically going to be in high disease activity, right. okay? And we have different ways of measuring that now. We, we can do it by the old, the old tried and true physical exam and metrics, what we call patient reported outcomes and, and uh, measurements such as the clinical disease activity index CDI or the rapid three or the D- disease activity score for the number of joints involved. And you get numbers and scores that give, tell you it's the person in low, medium, or high disease activity. Yeah. And that is not the ultimate guide to what one should do, but it is a significant factor in evaluating how much inflammatory burden does this person in front of me have? And by inference, what is their risk for uh, structural damage over the, say, next three to five years, uh, as well as internal organ involvement? And then we have imaging like uh, MRI or diagnostic ultrasound that shows us changes that maybe an X-ray doesn't show anything. And then we have what's called biomarkers, blood tests, complex biomarker tests that uh, have been validated that help us understand if somebody's, again, in low, medium, high disease activity so that we can gauge, hey, does this person need to be on a biologic sooner rather than later? Mm-hmm. It's yes or no based on those things and the discussion with my patient. So the short answer is yes, some people have a quicker course to biologics than others. The concept is there's a time clock ticking as to how quickly we can get someone into remission and getting them into remission sooner early on in the disease is very, very important because in rheumatoid, for example, the longer the inflammation is, the disease starts to become different, more difficult, and and at different characteristics than early on in the first year specifically. So all these factors influence the desire to hold or give biologics early or to wait in an individual. Mm, Okay. Yep. Thank you for that comprehensive answer. Uh, One more true or false uh, question for you before I'm going to ask you a personal question and we wrap this up. The true or false question, um, you know, here in the US, we've been shell-shocked by the cost of health insurance. My family and I pay um, an incredible amount of money uh, given that we're self-employed for our monthly health insurance. And I'm just wondering how much do insurance companies, or is this a, a fact or fallacy that insurance companies may actually influence the course of treatment for an individual by making it more difficult to get onto a certain prescription uh, or otherwise? It's a fact. 
It's a fact. And things like step edits, which uh, lead to denial of a treatment that a physician or practitioner needs, for example, changing the category of the biologic, that's an example. Needing to start somebody through too, too many disease-modifying drugs where it's obvious that they're going to need a biologic sooner because they've already had the condition a long time. They've got a lot of inflammation. They already have damage. Those people need to be on the biologic way sooner, along with the whole person approach. Now, I'm not going to say that every insurance company is trying to prevent that, but I am saying that built into the system in general, step edits is one 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 of these uh, barriers. N- number two, having to have requirements for two or three DMARDs for an extended period of time, that seems to be uh, a bit onerous. And then having to prove that the person needs a particular treatment when it's clear that it's FDA approved, it's not, this is not an experiment, you know, why would it not be approved? And uh, so on and so forth. So we run into those things. And those things are, are, are true, you know, in terms of delay, as well as delaying diagnostic testing uh, that are needed, such as an MRI and having to do, uh, you know, physical therapy for one to three months. I could see, you know, a, a month, but uh, more than that seems unreasonable and failing multiple oral uh, analgesics or anti-inflammatories when it's clear that that's not going to help. Um, this is, again, a delay tactic. I know that you're part of a group that you're actually one of the board members of, and I think you started uh, the uh, foundational sort of aspect of this. Is I think it's pronounced ARA or A-A-R-A, ARA. Would you like to uh, talk a little bit about that and how you and a group of professionals have tried to make the system a, a little bit more workable for both physician and patient? And so you you hit the nail on the head as to why we formed it. Here in South Florida, we formed five years ago, a group of 12 of us formed FARA, Florida Arthritis Rheumatology Associates, with the concept of protecting our specialty, our patients, and being able to practice rheumatology in a way that we felt is necessary for the patient and best care. So after about a year, it was clear that uh, this was needed and extremely well received by our colleagues. And we expanded out of the state of Florida and became ARA, American Arthritis and Rheumatology Associates. In the last five years, we've gone from those 12 original rheumatologists to over 250 to date in 25 states. We're the largest rheumatology supergroup in the United States. We're one group operating under one Medicare number and one tax ID number. Uh, the data that we have from our electronic medical record, one platform that has over 1 million patients in it, is huge in being able to answer what are best future treatments for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera. How do the drugs look in terms of effectiveness or side effects? And moving towards being able to answer questions that are coming up in the next 12 to 24 months about what's called value-based reimbursement, uh, because reimbursements are going to be changing by the payers, and value has to be demonstrated by all, which isn't simply lowering costs, but how do you improve care? How does the patient or patient population improve with best practices? And being able to prove that and show that is what we're able to do through our Columbus registry and database. Would you vouch for or feel that it's a a good recommendation for a patient who may be um, wanting to see someone locally 
to contact a rheumatologist through your group as opposed to, you know, any other random rheumatologist? So I humbly say yes, because (laughs) of a number of reasons. Number one, we have embedded within our group the concept of whole person care approach, that 360, in addition to highly trained, qualified, conventional rheumatologists. We are looking to become, if not already are, the preferred destination for rheumatology in the United States as far as outpatient clinical medicine goes due to the resources that are directed at improving the patient journey, answering these kind of questions that go towards improving and answering what it does value look like in rheumatology care. Our business partners, BenCare, which handle the, the business aspects of medicine because the physicians, the doctors, we're doctors, we're not businessmen. Their guidance, their metrics, their informatics, their scaling and being able to help us have best practices nationally in our offices so that our patients are the ones who are experiencing optimal care. That's the winning formula right now, especially in the environment that we're living in. Okay, wonderful. All right. And then a personal question before we wrap. I know that uh, there's a um, belief that psychologists find it difficult sometimes to to let go of their work when they get home because they've dealt with emotional issues all day and it can affect them personally and there can be a high depression rate and worse for psychologists. Uh, In rheumatology, you know, we touched upon earlier about how patients can feel lack of hope and they're concerned, they're worried, they've got a very serious condition. And whilst you have the skill set to be able to appropriately treat them, do you often find that you take home a little bit of that heaviness and do you have have a way of of combating that? Uh, So the answer is no, I I don't uh, take home the heaviness very often. At this point in my evolution, there was a point when I did in uh, learning self-care as a physician, which is not taught in medical school. Self-care, exercising regularly, understanding that the same things I suggest to my patients, how to eat, I should do. That doesn't mean we don't cheat or we don't have favorite things. That doesn't mean that. It means what I do most of the time. It also means that I need to sleep uh, decently and enough and that I also need to take my vitamins and that I also need to get checked by the doctor if you know, just to make sure everything's okay and not delay if I'm worried. Men in particular, from societal reasons, in general, have a mindset of delaying self-care, whether it's attitudes towards medical care, physicians, whether it's machismo, whether it's I can do it alone, whatever the, the attitude is, It's important for men in particular to take the opposite approach and basically surrender to the concept that we need the same self-care as anyone else. Don't delay. And the worst physician is to try to be oneself, one's own doctor, because that I, I heard that Only a fool would do that. So I ascribe to all those things. It's easy to self-treat. I don't do it. I have a doctor. And it's important for both the physical, the mental, spiritual aspects of self-care so that I don't burn out. So prevention of burnout is part of what I heard you asking Because if I wasn't doing these things, then it starts to slowly decay into that pattern. And that's something that I don't have at this point. I really enjoy what I do. I don't bring it home. 
That doesn't mean that at times I'm not concerned about something or there's perhaps some business aspect. But again, um, I am I have learned not to be a workaholic. I've learned to shut it off. And I've learned about energetic protection from my shamanic colleagues, including the, the clothing colors we wear and actually doing particular mental energetic exercises if we have a particularly difficult situation or patient who's draining. We want to not get negatively influenced or, or drawn down by that. So I yes. hope I answered that. Yes, absolutely. I can relate to the men wanting to self, you know, self work on uh, uh, without assistance. You know, that certainly uh, was something that um, I I adhered to very, very much early in my um, in my diagnosis. Well, thanks so much for all the time uh, that you've shared with us in this episode. It's been very, very insightful. Um, you've really, really given us some uh, great personal insights with your uh, story with the Jaguar, which was very, very, very interesting and talked about some of these uh, true or false scenarios. And and that was very surprising, actually, some of the answers to that. So thank you for that. And And I know that you are practicing in South Florida, but you do do Zoom consultations because someone who saw you on the rheumatology panel that we were part of uh, then contacted you and then she became part of my support group and she shared how impressed she was with the consultation that she did with you, how thorough you were, how reassured she was and how pleased she was with the uh, suggestions that you made for her and her path forward. So given that um, uh, you offered that service to someone else, are you uh, open to offering that service to people from all over the world? I am, and I'm happy to help anyone that you know needs help that is willing to uh, contact us in that regard. Um, we do it primarily through the Oasis Institute website as the main contact, and uh, theoasisinstitute.com uh, in Miami, uh, and we're able to go ahead and set up a consultation for someone who would like to do that. Fantastic. Well, I'm sure a lot of people will want to do that after listening to you. Um, You have the attributes that are quite different to at least the stereotypical uh, traditional rheumatologist, and I think that's very refreshing, and you're going to get uh, uh, quite a lot of interest to people wanting to, to talk with you about their circumstances. So thanks again for coming on this episode. It's been a real pleasure, very interesting, and I look forward to having you back again real soon. Thank you, Clint. Always a pleasure and a privilege. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Rheumatoid Solutions. If you'd like to get more help to live an easier, healthier, and happier life, visit rheumatoidsolutions.com.